0: Binge Mode is brought to you by TheRinger.com. On the site today, you can find a truly wonderful piece by the great Roger Sherman. The ranking of all the dogs in I Love Dogs, which, if you say it quick enough, is I Love Dogs.
1: Let it never, ever be said that The Ringer is not a bastion of
0: important journalism. That's right. (laughs) We're primarily a pet blog. (laughs) Plus... If you're looking forward to season three of Billions, as much as we are, go subscribe to The Recapables wherever you get your podcasts from the season premiere on March 25th on El Jefe Bill Simmons and Mallory Rubin. Hey! We'll be reviewing each episode right after it airs on Sunday nights. Speaking of Bill. Yes. And when are we not?
1: (laughs) Billions co-creator and friend of the ringer. And Knicks fan. (laughs) That's right. Brian Koppelman joined Bill on the Bill Simmons podcast this week. So please check that out as part of your gear up for season three. Warning, binge mode contains adult content.
0: Like Chef Ryan, the personal family chef of the Axelrod family, getting thrown that neck at the Hamptons house while Axe is away. You don't want to hear about stuff like this. Don't watch Billions and don't listen to this podcast. Those towels go in the trash. You're damn right they do. (laughs) Can you show me the rest of the house? I'm so close. (laughs) Hold on. Just give me a minute. (laughs) Who breaks off a sexual act to say, could you show me the rest of the house now? To be fair. Yeah. Very nice house. (laughs) (laughs) It is truly a gorgeous house. Lovely house.
1: A house, by the way, we should note. Mm. Good (laughs) note. That... Axe does not commute from full time. We would like to correct the record from season one's podcast where we implied, where we slandered Bobby Axe Axelrod by saying that he was cheating the laws of Space and time That's right. by commuting from the Hamptons to his office every day. He isn't. No. He's commuting from his Westport mansion.
0: That's right. He has two man- at multiple. least two mansions, He's got multiple the, mansions. The
1: New York apartment, just real estate everywhere. So we're sorry. We're sorry, sorry
0: Bobby. And shouts to Brian Koppelman, David Levine, and Andrew Ross Sorkin for the mistake. And uh, shouts to Chef Ryan <laughs> just for living his best life when the Axelrods rods are at the other house. <laughs>
1: One more warning. Sure. Binge mode contains spoilers. If you don't see Wags's ass tat when you close your eyes at night, and we assure you that we do, yeah. please proceed with extreme caution.
0: And now, the six <laughs> rules of Bushido and binge mode.
1: You let your hatred of me put everything you hold dear in
0: jeopardy. I'm gonna find it. Whatever it is, whatever thread you left behind, however small, the one that threatens everything you are, we both know it's out there. You know exactly what it is. You were talking about sleepless nights. It's what you wake up thinking about in the dark, shaking. Because I'm gonna find it. You know I will. And I'm gonna pull on it. And I'm gonna pull on it until your whole fucking world unravels. And when I am done, you won't be governor. You won't be the US attorney. You might not even be an attorney at all. Yeah, I might go down behind all of this. But one thing is for sure. You are gonna be right there next to me. Wow. Like I said before, Bob. Worth it. Hello! Yes!
1: (laughs) And welcome to Binge Mode. Oh yeah. I'm Allie Rubin. Deputy editor of TheRinger.com. What a great website. <laughs> joining me today. Now that he's finished presenting me with my coin for a spot on the
0: arc. It's a scam. It's a Ringer staff writer and your maester. That's right. Jason Concepción Jay. Did you get yourself a spot too? As Bobby Axelrod noted, it's a scam. But if humanity has to be rebuilt, sure as fuck shouldn't be in my image. Besides, you know I want to be on the outside with wags rocking with the marauders. But until then. Every Thursday on Binge Mode Weekly, we'll be diving deep as Chef Ryan into the topic that's obsessing us at the moment. And this spring, we'll be diving into Binge Mode Harry Potter, You'll be (laughs) both weekly and the eventual Harry Potter pod on the same feed. So stay subscribed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate and review us. Yes, five stars. We also want to remind you that we'll be at this spring's Con of Thrones in Dallas. Finish that book, George. More details to come, but we'd love to see you there. In the meantime, please follow us on Twitter at Binge underscore Mode, aka The Underscore, and join our new Facebook group where things are just incredible just for Binge Mode fans. Taylor would advise you to take out a huge position.
1: This week on Binge Mode, Ooh. we're double dipping on one of our most Dip that twice. cherished bits of Pop culture excellence. That's right. Billions. Love it. On Thursday, we looked back at the power dynamics and WAG's lines that define season one. And today, we are exploring the icy, juicy ice
0: goodness of season two. I've never seen a more absolutely gonna hit IPO in my life than Ice Juice. It's <laughs> a sure thing. Don't get high
1: on your own supply. Don't do it. Again, Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge. As always, we will be going deep.
0: Deep, Chef Ryan.
1: On details from season two of Billions and calling back to some season one action as well. So sniff your truffles and light up your cigars. Because it's time to head to the
0: Yale Club. Jason. Yes.
1: I got you a latte. Thank God. I don't know what kind of cookies you like, so here's a variety.
0: I'm not having a cookie.
1: Always take the cookies. That's my take. You will need your energy because, as we said last episode, 12 hours of plot is a lot to cover, a lot to keep straight. Sadly, it's more than we actually can cover today. We really wish that we could go line by line. There's so much deliciousness here. This season is truly, truly good season of television. This
0: show elevates in season
1: two. It's wonderful. We had so much fun rewatching this. So we're going to talk about as much of it as we can. Let's offer up a brief refresher on some of what actually happened in season two of Billions by taking a quick trip down a very own King's Road. And if we leave enough time, we might be able to swing by Dollar Bill's batting cages on the way.
0: (laughs) That's right. Dollar Bill into a lot of side businesses. (laughs) We just say that about DB. After the events of season one, we find our two chess masters, U.S. Attorney Chuck Rhodes and hedge fund billionaire Bobby Axelrod under siege on the professional front. Chuck is under DOJ investigation for his conduct during the Axelrod case, and on the personal front, he and Wendy have separated. Axe managed to avoid jail, and Axe Cap is still in business, but his brush with the law has left him and the company shaken. Oliver Dake. You know that guy sucks just from his name. The DOJ's brother, Muzone.
1: (laughs) Point man on this investigation is as determined to nail Rhodes as Chuck is to get Axe. And Dake does find something damning. Oh, yeah those five sticks? Five sticks, (laughs) baby! Five sticks that Axe paid Wendy Oh, by the way, on the same day that Chuck dropped the case against Axe. That sure looks like a
0: bribe. Axe appears on a panel with rival hedge fund figure Todd Krakow. (laughs) Axe very publicly dunks on Krakow and Krakow vows revenge. He's already been trying to hire Wendy and now he gets her to agree to be his coach in an upcoming poker tournament. Meanwhile, Chuck is in deep shit. The AG plans to let Dake roast Chuck. His only course of action is to bag one of the AG's political enemies, thus proving his worth and cementing his place at the table. Maffee
1: introduces Axe to a highly promising young intern, Taylor Mason, who identifies as gender non-binary and uses the pronouns they, them, and their. Taylor has an incredible gift for seeing patterns in the chaos of the numbers that drive the market. Taylor discovers that Krakow has been using satellites to glean information about Chinese factories. And doesn't stop there. Taylor also discovers that this intel is faulty. Axe plans to use this knowledge to punish Krakow.
0: That plan to go after the AG's enemies, Chuck realizes he had it backwards. The way to get the AG off his back is to go after one of her allies, That way, if she comes after him, she'll look like she's putting her thumb on the scale. Chuck finds his mark. Lawrence Boyd, a banker and power player peer of Axes, who also moderated the panel with Krakow. Eventually, they strike a deal. Boyd coughs up a few mid-level guys, and Chuck calls off the dogs.
1: Axe and Oren organize 127 suits against Chuck In essence, amounting to a class action lawsuit, impossible to ignore, terrible press for Chuck, Axe is motivated by the damages Chuck's investigations have
0: done to his business. Chuck's troubles are mounting. Axe Cap, staring down the first down quarter in its history, Axe drives his staff hard in order to stop the bleeding. Mafi brings him an idea based on inside information, short the currency of Nigeria. Only problem is the buy-in price requires Axe to partner up with Stephen Birch and Krakow, among others. Birch, you'll recall, was burned by Axe in season one. He returns the favor, leaking news of the deal. Axe needs help. He needs Wags to help steady the ship. Wags, however, is in deep therapy after getting a Yosemite Sam tattoo on his ass. Things get worse when Chuck finally nails Boyd. Chuck begins eyeing higher office.
1: Axe, meanwhile, gets a tip about a casino opening in Sandicott, New York. He moves quickly, has Axe Capital buy up hundreds of millions of dollars of the town's municipal bonds, but... The deal hits the first of many snags when a local resident refuses to sell his property. Wendy gets Axe to drop the litigation against Chuck by agreeing to return to Axe Capital, but she has conditions, one of which is that she will not treat Axe directly. No sessions for him. Wendy's return causes problems, unsurprisingly,
0: for Lara and for Chuck. In the case against Boyd, during jury selection, Brian fires up class resentments, causing Boyd to panic. Boyd tells his team to settle. Chuck refuses, however, choosing instead to turn the screws on Boyd. The AG gives Chuck her blessing, calls off Dake. Chuck Sr., meanwhile, gets wind of the Sandicott deal. He calls on an old acquaintance, Blackjack Foley, in order to scuttle the deal.
1: Axe lies to Lara. This is a no-no, guys. Tough stuff tells her that he won't be having sessions with Wendy when, in fact, that was Wendy's stipulation for returning, not Axe's decision. Then Axe discovers that the casino deal fell through. It's going to a different town. This is an unmitigated disaster. Axe Cap is now saddled with hundreds of millions in essentially worthless Sandicott bonds. To salvage the situation, the Axe Cap brain trust weighs placing Sandicott On austerity measures. This basically means (laughs) gutting
0: the town. Yes. Chuck takes Brian to Keene's Steakhouse more on this later. He reveals that he knows Brian snitched to the DOJ. They reach a detente, though. Chuck will be, from now on, transparent with Brian. If Brian proves his loyalty, Chuck will make sure Brian becomes the new head of the criminal division. Crim. Head of Crim. (laughs) I just love that. I love that. Head of Crim. (laughs) I feel like that's a
1: position that Mr. and Mrs. Martinez (laughs) practice. Oh, my God. (laughs) Axe discovers that Chuck and Chuck Sr. have been dealing with Black Jack Foley, who, Axe learns after painful efforts to get to the bottom of all of this, blew up the Sandicott deal. Axe confronts Chuck in... Really, one of the better scenes that perfectly sums up the yeah. contrast between the characters in every way. You weasel, you weasel, come out! Here. They're in their tails, axes, yes. just white, in a leather jackets. Yeah. Great stuff. Chuck is initially miffed with his father over his machinations, Dad. Yeah, <laughs> but he ultimately realizes that this is a good thing and that he can use it to his advantage in his run for governor because Axe is going to shred the part of New York
0: where Chuck pulls poorest Right. state. But then Foley says, ah, 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 ah. Aha! Sandicott, you see, is a circle and every road leads back to you. (laughs) Drawing attention to Sandicott would draw attention to Foley and Chuck Sr.'s involvement. Chuck will need to find another way to bring Axe down. Chuck's close friend and attorney, Ira, asks Chuck for a favor. Chuck Sr.'s help in investing in an upcoming IPO. I can't miss
1: IPO, guys. Can't miss.
0: Ice juice. Ice tea.
1: Wendy goes to Axe's birthday party at Lara's express invitation. Wendy just lets slip.
0: She knows what she's doing. She knew exactly (laughs) exactly what she was doing.
1: Oh, yeah. That it was her, not Axe, who decided that they wouldn't be having sessions once Wendy returned to Axe Capital. Lara, not thrilled, eventually takes the kids and leaves Axe,
0: sending him into an emotional tailspin. Imagine having a vault in your house with like $3 million in cash.
1: Oh, probably more than that, right? Got those
0: gold bricks. Yeah, she took gold bricks and cash. Incredible. If Chuck wants to be governor, he's going to need to make sure his dirty laundry never gets aired out. Enter George Minchak, an ace political consultant. She tells Chuck, among other things, either divorce Wendy or get back together. Shit or get off the pot. No half measures. Chuck realizes he needs to clean up those Mr. Martinez loose ends. <laughs> <laughs> Boyd, now in, honestly, this seems like the
1: very minimum security
0: person. He's in there like waxing the floor of a school. Or like, that's or like, his work assignment. <laughs> right?
1: And he's just like hanging out. By himself. Jen no guards. Axe, yeah. Wearing like a t-shirt. Looks pretty comfortable. Axe hands him a phone <laughs> and liquor. Whiskey. It's pretty great. <laughs> Always whiskey. Yeah, Boyd contacts Axe with some... Literally juicy information. Icy and juicy. (laughs) (laughs) Chuck Sr. is heavily invested in the looming ice
0: juice IPO. Axe, of course, plans to sink. Love that ice juice. And it is truly a nefarious scheme that Axe hatches. Acting through a variety of cutouts, Axe makes ice juice look like a delicious delivery system for Listeria. (laughs) Now, after a few heady hours, the IPO tanks. Ira is ruined. Chuck Senior, who doubled down on the IPO as it was off and running, loses a bundle—an money. bundle of Chuck's money. All that, and Laura returns home. Axe is victorious, or is he? Dun dun dun! <laughs>
1: <laughs> Turns out, Chuck, in a truly Kaiser Sose move that would make Dollar Bill proud,
0: DB would be like presumably Pastor Tim as yeah. well.
1: Put. Boyd up to contacting Axe. He baited Axe and now has Axe dead to rights. Axe literally was
0: poisoning people. People, literally like, literally poisoning people. people were literally poisoned by this. People were poisoned.
1: Chuck <laughs> brings Dake back from DC, has him head up the Axe case, and alerted to all of this by Boyd, who just can't help himself, can't help it, Axe just for a little bit. Just kind of gives everyone his credit cards, starts using burners, gets off the grid for a bit, buys some time. Meanwhile, Chuck Sr. and Ira are rightfully furious with Chuck for this betrayal. And Chuck,
0: he's truly alone. Shouts to my guy, Ira, who is very much like we're sailing away on the SS Live Forever for like a couple of hours here. Like, I'm rich. I'm quitting my job. This is it, guys. All my dreams come true. Give me that ice juice.
1: One of the best moments is after Chuck has confessed yeah. to Senior and Ira. And Ira's like, I'm going to vomit. And Senior's like, well, you did have one of those ice juice. It's <laughs> <for me. laughs> <laughs> pretty
0: great. Anyway, Axe meets with Wendy by ground zero. Chuck is waiting there, too. The feds grab Axe. Brian will lead the prosecution. Sacker will get chief of crim. Poor Lonnie. Tough stuff for Why my guy. Lonnie. nothing. <laughs> Tough stuff for my dude Lonnie. Taylor is named interim CIO of Axe Cap, dollar bill and wags will back Taylor, Axe makes bail and enters an empty house, Chuck and Wendy enter their brownstone holding hands. What a picture for the governor's mansion and the eventual governor's brochure. (laughs) Mal, the moral of the story is you get one life, so do it all. And that gets us to this episode's big idea, so let's cut right to the core of it, finally. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> By sticking it with the pointy end of George Minchak's pumps. Mm. The way Chuck looks at those pumps, he's just like, step on me. Ch- what about Chuck Senior? Tight little body. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> God. Chuck is, Senior. was is foul. <laughs> what a fucking dirtbag.
1: The moment when he like inter- <laughs> interrupts them, and he's like, I thought I heard my boy calling for me. Yeah, I thought she, my
0: boy needed me. <laughs> she walks out. Tight little body. The dividing theme of season two of Billions is Hubris. Let's start with Chuck. We started
1: with Axe last time. Let's, Massive
0: hubris season for Chuck.
1: Start with Chaz. Yeah, in the running for the best and most. We tricked you for a second. One perfect shot in yeah. TV history is Chuck being choked out. Ah, but not by Mrs. Martinez. That's right. <laughs> He's learning jujitsu, guys. A,
0: do you have your beeper in your gi? In your jujitsu gi, what is that? I feel down there, Mr. <laughs> Martinez, as I'm choking you. <laughs>
1: The instructor's words to Chuck also foreshadow Chuck's internal state and mindset for this season. You can generate offense out of defense, even on your
0: back. Chuck has a new non-axe problem, however, Oliver Dake. Fuck this guy. I will not quit. Rest assured, I will bring you down.
1: I'm like an octopus.
0: I'm like an octopus. All eight arms out there, (laughs) wrestling. The tight ass from the Office of Professional Responsibility, he cannot wait to cut Chuck down a size. He's offended. By Chuck's violation in the office, but also clearly by Chuck's hubris, in fact, by his belief that he can actually get away with it. And Chuck, even with all the heat from the investigation on him, never really sweat steak. He's concerned, sure, but he's just spent the last year going toe to toe with some of the wealthiest, most powerful, most connected plutocrats on the street. People like that are self contained nation states, right? Dake is a hard-ass, sure, but he's got a boss, the AG. Chuck knows he has moves to play, including leveraging the new open head of Crimspot to ensure that Lonnie, Brian, and Sacker protect Chuck's flank during Dake's interrogations. Even though Chuck is telling them to be, quote, truthful. Wink, 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 wink.
1: Heavy wink.
0: Heavy wink. wink <laughs> and he uses the same manipulation with Wendy. Chuck to his team, quote, starting immediately, you have a new mandate. Wait, I got to do it like Jeff Chow notes. Uh, Uh, Jeff Chow, CEO of The Ringer, noted that uh, Paul Giamatti says all his lines while sighing. So, (laughs) starting immediately, (laughs) you have a new mandate. Find me a case that's screaming for justice (laughs) when the no else has the courage to take on, especially if it (laughs) seems impossible to win. Asking Brian, Sacker, and Lonnie to do what he admits is... The impossible in order to save his job, that's hubris. Yes. He doesn't even give them a clear target. He's not even like, yeah, go after this guy. He just says, hey, uh, just steer clear of Axe Cap from now. That's not going to help. And Brian's like, help what? Right. Chuck doesn't need to answer, but the meaning and the look he gives them is clear. That won't help me. Oh, completely. And one of the greatest threats to Chuck's
1: plans, just in general, his own paranoia. And Brian is often... At the center of that. That's right. Chuck cannot help but suspect Brian, ultimately will realize rightly. Rightly. Absolutely rightly. From the moment that he sees Brian interacting with Dake. And this is also hubris because Chuck thinks, really, truly believes that he can control everyone and everything. That if he looks hard enough, if he looks long enough, he will find a way to solve it all, to bend everybody to his will but complicating matters for him very quickly here. Dake learns about Wendy's five sticks and thinks that this is a bribe that led Chuck to call off his case against Axe. Dake says, it may not be a bribe, but dang, if it doesn't look like one. I like the idea of like important (laughs) government officials saying dang, dang. That gives me some sort of faith in the world and smell like one. If I put my tongue on it. This is
0: incredible dialogue.
1: I bet it tastes like one too. Yum. Bang.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Have we mentioned that Dake is uh, deplorable? He's a tough hang. Dake, not the only person after Chuck. The AG is, too. Will Chuck's hubris allow him to think he can best a powerful member of the administration? I hmm, wonder. No, uh, yeah, yeah. No. yeah, pretty much. Chuck hits on a strategy. Use Ari Spiros, the scumbag, to leak that the government is set to investigate Spartan Ives CEO, Lawrence Boyd. Now, crucially... No such investigation is actually underway. (laughs) Very
1: (laughs) crucial detail.
0: (laughs) Chuck is targeting Boyd because Boyd is an ally of the administration. It's cover, essentially. Chuck knows that if the AG moves against him now, it will look like political payback as for whether Boyd and Spartan Ives is actually dirty. I mean, he's just got to be, right? As far as Chuck's concerned, Chuck figures if he shakes the tree, something is bound to come loose. And we should note he's right. Boyd to Axe when Axe asks if he's a bastard. What do you imagine I had to do to get to the top of Spartan Ives? Here's how the leak takes place. After Chuck calls Ari Spiros, a reporter calls Chuck and says, do you deny there's an active investigation of Lawrence Boyd? Chuck says, oh, if my office undertook such a radical endeavor against a bedrock company that's been such a friend to the administration, we would only do so with the full support of the attorney general's office. But no, I cannot confirm that. And it doesn't take long for Boyd to feel the heat. When Chuck meets with the AG, it's a real Game, respect, game moment. The AG immediately says, Congratulations. If I fire you now, it will look like the administration is protecting Boyd and obstructing justice. And Chuck continues, A man facing a firing squad has only two choices accept it or push against his restraints. And I don't accept anything. Hubris!
1: <laughs> Dake, worth noting, not exactly a stranger to hubris. He yeah. says
0: to Connerty,
1: I can influence the vector of your future. Get the fuck out of
0: here with the vector.
1: Dake feels like he was pulled out of a Marvel show. In a good way. In a compelling way. Like, he's... Almost crafting his own dialogue to fit this image of a tough guy. Right. You know, he wants people to fear him, but exactly he just right. often ends up looking like a clown. He's very at home in this world, though, where everybody is acting in this fashion. I'm smarter than you. I think I can win. And hard to imagine how Chuck wound up this way with whispers like that. Yeah. Chasing him around the office and with his own father saying things like, about Wendy. She has more money than you, and that's outside the natural order of things. You're effectively a cripple.
0: Chuck Sr., what a guy.
1: What a guy. That kind of thing obviously <laughs> hurts to hear. It's tough stuff. But Chuck finds affirmation for his hubristic tendencies almost everywhere he looks in almost every aspect of, of his, his life. <laughs> Consider the
0: Churchill book. Of course he loves Churchill.
1: <laughs> the Churchill book that Chuck has to sell because, I guess... Making $185,000 a year, you're just so hard-pressed for cash that if you're going to have to live on your own, you need to sell these books for $40,000. Let me try. I don't want to make another kind of like commuting from Southampton mistake here, <laughs> but that seems—I guess he's worried about the legal fees, right? right that's the thing. That's what we're, so, that's yeah, what yeah, we're yeah. supposed to do. So, of course, Chuck has to sell these books, X <laughs> snaps them up priceless. But as Chuck is parting with his prized yeah. possession, he reads part of it and says, never yield to force never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. Well, that's basically an endorsement (laughs) for letting your hubris rule you.
0: Chuck, by the way, has no problem about ruining a family to get what he wants. He'll ruin anything. He'll ruin his own family to get what he wants. And we'll talk about that in a bit. You can feel the table rising when he plays McKinnon the video of Boyd boning McKinnon's wife on the plane, Lawrence Boyd. (laughs) Can be friend to no man, Chuck says. He's a beast of the first order. Needs to demonstrate that he's the alpha of the pack. Needs to dominate you in his own mind by heaving his seed into your bride. What? Very tough McKinnon just goes, Jesus fuck. Jesus fucking indeed, guys. <laughs> heaving his seed into your bride. He might have wrapped that thing up. Come on, Chuck.
1: Chuck has a way with words. I'm just saying, he Chuck, really
0: he really does. He might have strapped that thing up.
1: That was McKinnon's next question. He didn't use a rubber? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Just needs the facts here. And, you know, Chuck <laughs> also has no qualms about trying to use and manipulate Boyd, despite how his attempts to play acts backfired on him. Chuck tricks Boyd into thinking that they've reached a deal after Boyd says, oh, you know, I'll get my compliance department to turn over some of my mid-level guys. Have your guy call my guy. We'll coordinate press releases. This will be great. Chuck is still pushing. Even with McKinnon drunk at the Boyd dinner, about to blow the entire op, Chuck rides the operation until he gets the information he needs on tape. He can't pull back ever caution is no longer in his playbook restraint is no longer in his vocabulary
0: which actually work for him in a way and fuel his instinct when chuck refuses the deal that boyd and his attorney pursue the ag calls chuck and finally tells him what he's been hoping to hear this whole time you have your open field and crucially your job make the deal time for dake to head home and chuck's growing designs on the governor's mansion now supersede everything he's willing to sacrifice all his personal relationships to that end photo ops with his son Kevin even his relationship with Chuck senior has been pushing him to run when chuck tells his dad that he doesn't need wendy standing next to him to be a candidate come on now, that's archaic dad senior <laughs> yeah. tells him son you do know why you need her in your life don't you she's a natural born killer how much of chuck and wendy's reconciliation eventual that's true, reconciliation by the way. it's absolutely true is driven by hubris his and her hubris chuck is even willing to sacrifice the thing that he might love more than anything else his feud with Axe, in order to gain the governorship.
1: <laughs> we mentioned Black Jack Foley and his role in squashing, getting the casino in Sandicott, thwarting Axe's play there, and also of... Shouts to David Stratham, who's great in everything. He's tremendous. I like the look for him this time, with he the beard and the, the shorter hair. He's handsome man. It's great stuff. And he is a kingmaker, a political kingmaker. He's Chuck's path to... The governor's mansion. And so Chuck Sr., who is trying to orchestrate all of this, all of these relationships, all of these plays, some of which Chuck knows about and some of which Chuck doesn't, chides Chuck over spurning a request from Foley, the kingmaker, this request to get Foley's granddaughter a clerkship. And Sr. is concerned because... Foley took that slight seriously. He's backing another candidate now, Bob Sweeney, for governor. Chuck says, we don't have kings, dad. We're democracy. And this is so great. Senior says, you sound like a fucking hippie. (laughs) And Chuck's response here is pure hubris. I don't need a power broker. I have my own power. And when it's made manifest, Foley will zip his Fucking pants back up. This is a reference to Chuck previously saying that Foley just wants his balls gargled. Right. I believe. (laughs)
0: It's the scientific term.
1: (laughs) And look me in the eye. He refuses to accept, it is against his nature to accept that he needs someone else. To help him achieve his goals, because what is hubris? It's thinking that you don't need anyone else. That's it's right. that everybody else needs you. That's you right. will
0: dictate the terms. You will dictate the results. I have my own power. So what does Chuck do? Visits Sweeney, because he's got to convince him to drop out. Go with the carrot and the stick. Hey, Bob, drop out, but also you can be my lieutenant governor. Sweeney box, of course. Sweeney says, I've won the lowliest elected offices we fucking got. Hell, I was the goddamn sanitation commissioner for a year. Shouts to the sanitation department. They do a great job. Yeah, and I rode the trucks. I've done it right. I've done it hard. And this, this is my time. And Chuck says, my name recognition is eight times yours. (sighs) Sweeney says, don't estimate Black Jack Foley or me. And Chuck doesn't, by the way. He makes good with Foley. The two share a conversation at a party at Jack's palatial home. Beautiful home. Gorgeous. Shouts to Ben Folds. (laughs) <laughs> and Chuck finally after all that I have my own power and when it's made manifest kisses someone else's ring he kisses Foley's ring Chuck asks Foley about the process of kingmaking. Foley says it's bracingly simple you pick the right man and then you get him the fuck out of his own way so people can actually see him elections aren't about ideals elections are about candidates and candidates are about what's in here and he taps Chuck's chest Chuck says I am the right man Foley says, I'm not going to ask you. You can't think it works that way. I love that. I love it. Love Makes that. Chuck come to him. Makes you got to kiss that ring. What do you think? I'm going to raise the ring to your lips? You got to bend over and kiss it. Chuck says, Jack, will you make me governor? Foley goes. Yeah. Okay.
1: Handing over the power with one That's line. It's it. incredible. Tough break for, to for Sweeney, by the way.
0: <laughs> very, very Forced tough break. Forced to
1: drop out of the race because Chuck goes to him with proof that Sweeney sent his gay son to a religious camp to try to turn him straight.
0: Yeah. Tough look. Very tough look for Bob Sweeney.
1: Senior and Chuck celebrate Foley's endorsement with a charming little parable about (laughs) bullfucking. I love the
0: bullfucking parable. I love any bullfuck parable. Chuck
1: Senior looks at his boy pride in his eyes. Says, maybe you are the one who gets to fuck them all. Hubris is really systemic in this family, it's ingrained in the the DNA. Chuck really needs someone like Blackjack. That's the truth. You know, he doesn't want to make those concessions, he doesn't want to give up any of the control, but it's actually a good thing for him that he does because he needs somebody like that to check his ego. He does. One of the things that Blackjack says to him this is after Chuck, is pursuing what happened with the casino, what's up with Thayer, how is Axe involved? Blackjack, of course, was involved in this, as was senior, so he's got to cut this off. And he says to Chuck, did I make a mistake with you? Are you playing for inches or yards? That is kind of always the question with Chuck because he thinks he's playing for yards, but he rarely is. He's so hung up, especially when it comes to Axe. On the slight of the moment. And ultimately, Chuck, who is trying to gain those gubernatorial points upstate by essentially campaigning already against Axe for how Axe is gutting that town, he has to take the L on pursuing Thayer and Sandicott because Blackjack says so. And it's that simple now. Chuck doesn't want to answer to any master, but he has to here.
0: Chuck's interactions with George Minchak, Foley's political consultant that put Chuck onto.
1: There's that great moment when Foley's like, you don't have to tell me everything. You have to tell Minchak everything. And then Minchak tells me.
0: Played by the great Mary Louise Parker using an accent that cannot be described (laughs) in words. (laughs) These interactions show that Chuck is actually learning. So Chuck hands Minchak the laptop that we learn. He had stolen from his dominatrix in a long-running plot that he had a guy... Pose as a customer of the domination for like two months. For a while. In order to steal this laptop. Anyway. For long enough to get into the room where the yes. laptop is. Like that's, wow. Yeah. So she asks him after he hands over the laptop if he's 100% confident and secure now that he has no dirty laundry out there. And he says, no such thing. <laughs> and Minchak says, "Now nah, you're getting it. Good, good. I can't even do it. It's wild. It's like James Carville meets, like, I don't know. And now a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Today's Binge Mode is brought to you by the Google Assistant. With the Google
1: Assistant, you can complete over a million actions. On your phone, in your car,
0: and around the house. For example, hey Google, add chips and salsa to my shopping list. Okay, I've added chips and salsa to your shopping list. Download the Google Assistant today. And now, back to Binge Mode. Let's talk about ice juice. Love the yeah, i listen, I have... Let's talk about Ice J. I have never seen a more (laughs) surefire IPO. Facebook? No. Google? No. Ice juice. It's fucking juice, guy. Like, how? People like juice. We live in LA. We know that people like juice.
1: People like to spend a lot of money on juice. (laughs) The ice juice plot is truly incredible. I
0: love ice juice.
1: I love it too. I will say, I don't know what it says about me that like every ice juice scene, I'm just like, that looks delicious. It does.
0: Also, (laughs) I just love Ice J. What they ice call Jay. it, Ice J. Ice J. <laughs> Chuck's handling
1: of the ice juice situation is a peak example yeah. of his hubris and his also his newfound ruthlessness. Because when Chuck discovers that Axe bought his Winston Churchill signed Second World War books, and, and this is wild. All existing copies. And this is through Steph's interview with yes. Sacker and Sacker's notes. And there's that great moment where Chuck's trying to get every detail from Sacker that he can. And she's like, I can see the books are, the trigger books are, are you. triggering. are <laughs> <you. laughs> Those are the little details that honestly just great. make the
0: show exceptional.
1: He snaps. Yeah. This
0: is what they do. This is what they do. How do you compete with something this powerful? That swims around for days on end, <laughs> just waiting for the faintest scent of blood so it can attack without warning and with all the ferocity and half the conscious of a goddamn bull shark. You can't, unless you can somehow anticipate where it will strike and then match its strength when it does, which you can't. <laughs> And
1: this here is where Chuck hatches his ice juice, ice J plan. We see him look over at the binder. Another lesson, by the way, from his jujitsu teacher. You saw you had to give him something, an opportunity, and you used it against him. Well done. In that moment, talking about the match, but really talking about the big picture here with Chuck and Axe and also life. This plan for Chuck Taking shape. He must bait Axe into attacking him like a shark at the place and time of Chuck's choosing. That's right. And he must leave no trace, no sign that this is a trap. That part's harder to do when you never know what anyone in your family is up to, by the way. (laughs) All right. How to do it? Sacrifice his own flesh and blood, no matter the cost, to bring Axe in. Chuck gets Boyd to you know, just drop a little bit of a little knowledge bomb yeah. on Axe, that senior, who is currently cash poor to, to some of his uh, casino-centric real yeah. estate holdings, where that actually ended up, is leveraged up to his neck with Chuck's trust fund money in order to get in on Ice J. love that Ice J. Axe sees a chance here after he learns this from Boyd to harm father and son, likening it to a poison poison.
0: Dart. Golden frog dart.
1: Wags tried to smoke that one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What a legend. Amazing
1: that that guy woke up with a tattoo he didn't remember getting. Fucking legend. That dart that goes through one victim and also harms another. He can take out Senior and Chuck alike. How far Axe will go to damage the family, Chuck can't know, but. Wow, does Axe go a hell of a long way? Quite a way. He sends Hall to plant trace bacteria in the actual ice juice factory and then uses a variety of compatriots and these lackeys to literally spike their own ice juice. To put vials of poison into their juice at various locations in order to simulate this outbreak of what we're never quite sure. They shout out a couple different possible strains. On the very day that ice juice is going public, people are violently vomiting Blah! all over ice juice floors. The IPO tanks. Chuck Sr., who doubled up yeah, as in the, the middle. stock was rising, that's the whole fun. This thing
0: is running. Loses millions. We'll hear from Axe later. Twenty seven million. Love the moment when Chuck tells Ira and Sr. What has occurred? Incredible scene. Ice J never made anyone sick. I was like, whoa. whoa. They were faking? And Chuck says, no, they were actually ill, just not from your product. I love that your product because, cool. as we know, Ira is an owner <laughs> of Ice J IPO. And in a little while, that will be revealed for what it was sabotage, a deliberate criminal act to injure the company. An act by and senior breaks in because he knows he can see where this is going. Axelrod, an attack on us, on you. So, Ira can sue Axelrod for his money back, but I'm guessing I can. And Ira is like, well, why? And Senior tells him, because Chuck lent Senior the money from his blind trust and therefore cannot reveal his involvement in this case. And Senior says, and Chuck did not set all this in motion to let that happen. Did you, son? Chuck says, no, Dad, I did not. And Ira now realizes what happened. You baited him. You used my career, my future. And senior, my money moves like that. Where do you get the fucking nerve? Could it be from you telling him all the time to do this kind of thing to people? Exactly. And by the way, Chuck has even more nerve than this. He gives senior, this is incredible shit. Yes. He gives senior a fucking affidavit that would say that senior accessed Chuck's blind trust without Chuck's knowledge. I need you to sign this. This is what you always wanted. Me, your son, your scion. In that office, in that chair. (laughs) Later, after Chuck Sr. signs the affidavit, just so you know, I'll always be your father. You'll always be my son. You'll stand up at my funeral and say meaningful things about me. But until then, I am done with you. And then he gives Chuck a manila envelope and says, open it. I want to watch you open Uh, it. (laughs) And it's pictures of Wendy and Craig Heidegger, the Elon Musk rocket guy, coming out of a motel after fucking. Now you've got what you really want. You're on your own.
1: I like to think back after watching this just total destruction of a lifelong, (laughs) literal lifelong relationship between Chuck Sr. and Chuck. I like to think back to the exchange that Chuck and Sacker had earlier in the season when Brian has revealed some information to Sacker about her father's offshore holdings. And she sort of fronts with Brian and then goes to Chuck and basically is like, I don't know my own father. And the advice that Chuck gives her in that moment is... You have to protect that parent-child relationship. Anyone else in the world will fuck you over. Friends, lovers, bosses. Your father is the one person you're going to be able to count on when it matters. I guess (laughs) Chuck, like, just stopped thinking this or thinks that this is the ultimate manifestation of being able to count on his father when it matters. But to put so little value... On the closest relationships in his life. On his fortune. That money's for his kids one day. Yeah. He throws away his relationship with his best friend. His relationship with his father. His personal fortune. That he can't use in the moment, but is there for him eventually. He lies also, to Wendy's face can, also. Oh, yeah. Also, he can get acts. Yeah. That's obsession. That's the yeah. quest for power that we talked about in season one. But it is also the blinding hubris that his judgment is... Ultimately, the only thing that matters that if That's he right. thinks
0: it's right, it is. Later, Chuck visits Axe in prison because you just know there is no way yes. that Chuck is going to be able to stay away from it. He's not going to want to see pictures of Axe on the perp walk on TV or The in a, second he arrives, he's there. He wants to be there in the room to see Axe in the fucking cell. And Axe unleashes on him, basically telling him, hey, You may think that you did this without evidence, but you did. You know you left a trace, and I'm going to fucking find it. And when I find it, I'm going to pull on that string until this whole thing unravels. And then he continues. He says, quote, yeah, I might go down behind all this, but one thing is for sure. You were going to be right there next to me. And then Chuck said, well, like I said before, Bob, worth it. (laughs) And there it is. Chuck is willing, in order to get what he wants, to burn everything around him. Everything.
1: I also love the callback there to season one. Yeah. One of the highlights of season one is Axe shouting worth it after yeah. he knocks out the guy who drove his kids <laughs> right. drunk. And, you know, we know that Chuck has seen that video. and right. That was like a key plot point in season one. And for him to throw Axe's words back in his face, that's another alpha male I'm taking Truly. control. I'm taking what's yours away from you. And the end of Chuck's season... His final play, this manipulation to get Dake back in. Obviously, Dake is the one who leads to Axe's arrest in the first place. But everything that happened there to get Axe in cuffs involves Chuck making another deal that we just have to assume is going to be a key part of season three. So it's worth it's worth mentioning here, (laughs) right? Chuck gaining assurance from Dake that his family's role in the Ice Juice IPO. Will not come out, and yeah. he gives Dick in return the key to finding Axe in the first place because Axe was successfully evading capture. He says, "Get on the wife's phone." And Dick's like, "Pay attention, dude. I already and it's not not <laughs> his wife, mine." And the reason this is worth mentioning is because the irony here is so thick. Watching Chuck watch Wendy and Axe as Axe gets arrested, yeah, he is simultaneously watching. His greatest victory, which is bringing Axe down, and his greatest failure, which is Wendy in Axe's arms at that most critical moment of his life. And he's watching those things happen
0: at once. And it's happening at Ground Zero, at the 9-11 memorial, the place where Axe made his fortune, essentially, on the bones and dust and wrecked buildings. Speaking of Axe, season two opens with (laughs) Axe at the racetrack. Watching those ponies, thinking about life. In many ways, he tells Ornbach, this place made me. There's nowhere that the stark difference between winners and losers is more clear. Right away, we're clear on Axe's season two vibe. Right where we left him, ready to win, expecting to win, but also with a kind of newfound sense of his own mortality. He's trying to stick between the lines now. As much as a guy like Axe can, I should say. He's still dealing with Dollar Bill. He's like, listen, if you're down with Dollar Bill, you know that some shit is going down.
1: Piggybacking off that point about mortality, you know, Axe and Chuck are both defined by their hubris. But one of the show's better subversions of expectations, really, is that Axe is actually more in touch with his mortality than Chuck is. And the great tradition of Axe making stirring (laughs) wartime general speeches to the office continues apace in season two. (laughs) Some truly remarkable scenes every time. He says, in the great expanse of time, we're already dead. Talking about dinosaurs. Yeah. (laughs) Rallying the troops here, getting them to focus, giving them perspective. But, That doesn't mean that he's not convinced in his own ability to prevail. I'm going to fight the inevitable, he tells them. He's kind of occupying this middle ground. He's acknowledging that he's facing these very real threats, but he's also still confident that he can thwart them. I'm a survivor, Axe says, and I will do whatever it takes to avoid my fate.
0: Not change my fate, avoid it. And that is a really key distinction. It really is. And— He can't focus on his fate for too long because there's one thing that Axe needs to do this season. It's fuck with Chuck Rhodes. He is obsessed with hurting him in any way he can. If Chuck shows the slightest bit of weakness, Axe is there hitting him. Think of the books. Axe just wants to hit him wherever he can. He can't trust in the system to take Chuck down. The book thing is great. That is just fucking incredible (laughs) shit. His hubris requires him to believe that he needs to get involved to ensure the desired outcome. When an enemy's down on the field, he says, you got to finish him. Like Chuck with his jiu-jitsu teacher, Axe soaks up wisdom, just wherever you can find it. Oh, yeah. This time it's from Raul Gomez, his former investor who's trading cop shop stories with Lara's brother at the grill.
1: My fellow castle heads might know him as Montgomery.
0: <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it's hard to defend against numbers. That's a lesson you have to learn once and Axe spins this right around to Orenbach. One suit isn't enough, right? You can parry one suit. You can parry three suits, five suits, ten suits. Can you block 127 suits? No, they strike a plan to build this enormous class action suit and this is Utter hubris. Axe isn't just content to use his own life and resources to bring down Chuck. He's got to use the levers of the law, and he's got to use it in multiple fashion. He believes it's his right, his privilege, as someone smart enough to see the play to bring other people into this mess as well, right? I came from nothing. I worked to get here. Axe came from nothing? He came from nothing, guys, as he tells Mark Cuban. Actually, Mark Cuban says— You and me, Axe, we came from nothing. And Axe is just like, you're goddamn right we came from nothing. These 127 cases, which could presumably be difference makers in in many of those claimants' lives, that's crucial to remember, are just chess pieces for Axe. They're toy soldiers. And this is one of the things that makes season two really, really great. Season one is fun, 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 fun. Season two Season is, one is fun. Fun. I love season two. Season two <laughs> is among the many things that make season two elevated above season one in terms of quality is the show really gets into okay, yeah, these guys are throwing around numbers and moving vast sums of money and buying this and buying that and putting people out of business. What does that mean? Right. What does that mean for actual people's lives? And the show actually goes into that this season. How perfect is it, by the way, after
1: we've discussed the theme of the chess game? We get an actual chess scene this season. Yeah, that's great. Chuck. Chuck. Just out at the park. Just man of the people. I saw what you did.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Axe. Too busy making money to play chess. Yeah. Axe has a new lieutenant rising up the ranks and a truly tremendous new character in season two. Best, best
0: character of the season. Taylor. Yeah.
1: Who instantly wows him. Imagine being Mafi's intern.
0: Oh, man. Two-minute tangent for you on Maffee and Deb. Go. Muffy and Deb. How are they together? How is this possible that this happened? I, it's kind of like Chuck and Wendy, actually. In the running for stealth, most
1: amazing moment of the season is <laughs> when Muffy refuses the lap dance when he's out with Wags. Yeah. And, you know, Wags is like, are you guys exclusive? And Maffee's like, I am. She's not. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible stuff. Yeah. Taylor. Maffee's intern. Instantly wows yeah. Axe and... Taylor wows Ax so much that he just won't accept losing Taylor when Taylor's internship ends. He paints a picture of what Taylor is meant to do, of what Taylor's
0: life could be. Let me just say one thing: Ax offers Taylor seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and Taylor is like, "I nah, I'm going to go back to grad school. It's the University of Chicago, guys. It's like what? I'm going to study under whatever his name is. He's an egghead." <laughs> <laughs>
1: Axe is ready, though. He's ready to negotiate, maybe against himself. Offers a stick.
0: Listen, it's it's a stick.
1: (laughs) It's a stick. And tells (laughs) Taylor that glass, it's not a barrier. It's a lens. It's an asset. It's what makes you good. You see things differently. It's an edge. This is really charming and warms us as much as Taylor up to Axe, but. It's also important to remember that, yes, he sees things. Yes, he cares. Yes, he invests in people that he really believes in. But this is also his hubris at play. He thinks after like 30 seconds that he knows better than Taylor what path Taylor should pursue. This kind of advice continues during the poker tournament. Alpha Cup. Gotta get some poker. Shouts to the rounders
0: heads out there. Oh, my God. You could just feel Koppelman and Levy and being like, oh, we're back in it.
1: (laughs) Here we go. Axe is trying to get Taylor to participate and help him win, help him beat Todd Krakow. And Axe says, hate is nature's most perfect energy source. It's endlessly renewable. This is how Axe thinks. And so, of course, it's how he believes his protégés should think, too,
0: But is that really his decision to make? Axe's confidence is soaring, as is typically the case when he fucks up someone's day and Taylor helped him bring down Krakow's Chinese factory play, right? Here's the thing about Axe, and it's a weakness, I think, as much as when Axe brings down someone, when Axe fucks with somebody, he can't just let it happen. Right. He's got to sign his name to it. And he does that. He tells Steph to tweet about it. (laughs) And she's like, it's a little brazen. And he's like. I don't want to be subtle. I want them to know it's me. Part of it is, of course, that maybe you can't win in Axe's world unless you're like this, unless you convince yourself that you're incomparable, unless you strike fear into everyone else. Gus, Wendy's Shark Tooth necklace replacement—certainly thinks so. And man, what an entrance by my oh guy god. Gus! He says to Ben, "Holy fuck, do you people need what I do? <laughs> you think this is therapy? No." When Axe shreds him, oh my god! This when is a the, tour the bike outfit. Yeah. Oh, my God. What a a moment. He's like, you're in here practicing for the Tour de France in your underwear. (laughs) (laughs) And then we see Gus later on doing, like, seminars, like, Unleash the Winner Within or something. (laughs) What a legend. I would watch a Gus spinoff. Fuck yeah. Chuck was not the only
1: one displaying Huber's in his Boyd dealings. Axe is also trying to use Boyd to gain intel about how Chuck and Co. are acting. He says to Lara, babe. Everyone in the world, apart from you, me, and the kids, is cannon fodder. Also, we assume he says, Everyone in the world, besides you, me, and the kids, knows how to hold a piece of pizza, even if it's covered in caviar. How could that kind of attitude, it's only us, we're the only yeah. ones who matter, ever come back to bite axe? But he means it. He really does in ways both big and small. You know, that Churchill play against Chuck, that's not like really in any way about winning in the biggest sense, no. it's just about fully crushing his opponent's will, which he really believes that he can do. And when Steph tells him that buying up those first editions will get pretty expensive, his response is a pitch-perfect embodiment of his approach. Well then, it's a good thing I'm a rich fucking man. And Axe actually does want to go to a deposition with Chuck. He says, if you take no out of the vocabulary, and Oren follows up with, Yes is the only word. By the way, just tremendous Oren-Axe interplay all season long.
0: Love me some Oren Bach hashtag the Yellow King from season one of uh, The Actually Detective.
1: Amazing deposition line from Axe to Chuck. He says when Chuck's like, you know, I just laugh sometimes thinking about you tearing this place apart. And Hack says, you know, I never think about it, but I'm not alone at night. I mean, he is just trying to cut Chuck down in yeah. every way he can. And then when he's goading Chuck about where he's sleeping and he says, Who's paying for it? Me or daddy? Yeah. Woof. Axe pays plenty of people. He pays a very handsome sum for counsel that he trusts in many different forms. But his makeup fundamentally does not allow him
0: to believe that there are situations he can't win. And this is more hubris, by the way. The casino deal and the Nigeria deal, which we'll talk about in a second. The reason that Axe is pursuing these is because Axe Capital is facing its first down quarter in its history, and he can't let that happen. Cannot. Hubris again. His chief of staff is like, hey, you know, people have down quarters. That happens. It happens in life. You have a down quarter. And he's like, no. she did not stay around long after <laughs> He that. was quickly fired and <laughs> followed out the door by Gus. Sandigat comes in Axe's world through Marco. Bruno's nephew, Bruno the pizza man, who has the tomatoes that come in a can. Axe is ready to pounce, And he says to Taylor. If he checks out, that's the kind of giving I can get behind. I mean, this is how all charity should work. You mean benefiting you more than anyone else? As much as. Not more. An entire town. This is like, we can't understate this. An entire town is fair game for Axe. He's going to decimate a town in order to get Axe capital into the black. And, of course, what's a town compared to a country, <laughs> even? <laughs> the currency of a sovereign nation. Mafi brings in his buddy Everready, who has a tip about shorting Nigeria's currency. And it's so tantalizing that Axe brings the major finance families together to make a play. Because it's, he can't go in on his own. The, the price is just too high to get into actually destroying an entire nation. And the hubris leads him to bring in Birch, the guy he fucked in season one to the table and put his money and life in Birch's hands. And Krakow's hands, by the way, also. And it backfires, of course, because Axe flew too close to the sun. Birch fucked him. You have to imagine Birch is like, man, what did I do to deserve this that I I would actually get the chance to fuck Bobby Axelrod in my lifetime? Which, in classic Axe fashion, is not a cautionary tale. His solution is to allow his hubris to guide him again, this time by using Boyd as a pawn. And how severe is is Axe's hubris? He tells Boyd what he did. He actually just lays tough. it out for him. He says, Warren tipped off Axe to Boyd's impending arrest, but Axe needed Boyd to sell his currency play on TV, so Axe waited. <laughs> he waits. After the segment. Yeah, yeah. I'll he tell you knows that, that, about he to knows that Boyd is about to get arrested, but he needs Boyd to sell that play so he doesn't tip Boyd off, doesn't allow him to flee. He's so sure of himself and his action and his role as <gasps> this ringleader that he doesn't consider how... Boyd might hold it against him, or perhaps he does, but he just doesn't think that Boyd can hurt him in any way. This is one of those moments when Axe's hubris blinds him the most. Even in a moment that will prove to be a loss for him down the road, when Boyd turns on him, Axe is dunking on his foes.
1: Chuck I tells I love him, this. I love—this might be my favorite single—single yeah. single hair moment of
0: season two. Hello, Bob. <laughs> I don't put any stock in omens or fortune tellers, but this must feel a little like your future foretold. And Axe tells me watching you arrest other people while <laughs> I walk right out the door. Yeah, it kind of does. <gasps> I love
1: that. Axe owns Chuck in every single yeah. conversation. It is incredible. And while Axe is evading capture from Chuck at this point in the season, he's going all in on Santa Cat and it backfires. This was... Hubris, yes, but also that kind of research and thoroughness that Axe has a track record for has told him to trust in what he finds. And yeah. he did his due diligence. He did do that. And if Senior hadn't fucked him by calling up Blackjack Foley, Axe would have actually been right. So he opts for that austerity play. Who are these people? What right. is this town? You know, his conscience does tug at him, but Kinda. not enough ultimately to sway him. These people, this place, there's just impediments on his road to redemption. And he is, to his credit at least, not blind to how that will play publicly. And, you know, his hubris is often grounded in this basic need to know. He cannot accept having anything less than every single fact. And this manifests when the Sandicott deal goes wrong. He says, this isn't just political, it's personal, and I cannot rest until I know why. He means it. What does that desperation cost him? You know, when he shows up at the Yale Club, shouting about weasels and yelling. (laughs) Hold on to this man, Chuck, for one day soon he will be gone. Talking about Chuck Sr. And then you will finally have to do something for yourself. He's making a Different kind of threat, but it's kind of cloaked in wisdom. He's sort of right, yeah. and maybe Axe is thinking about death because you know he's got a big birthday, big birthday, and yeah.
0: which he doesn't stick around for.
1: No, and when Taylor was asking, and this is an attendance mandatory, right. one of the things that Axe says is the moral of the story is you get one life, so do it all. And of course, that way of thinking. Trying to do it all means on some level believing that you can. And in Axe's case, doing it all literally means poisoning people, Jason. Yeah. Axe bites on Boyd's ice juice tip because Axe never considered that Boyd and or Chuck would be able to play him in this fashion. He believes always that he's the one playing everybody else. And his hubris, it blinds him to other people's ability to play as dirty as he does, which is exactly what Chuck was counting on. You know, the depths that Axe sinks to, the foolish mistakes that he makes, you know, using people like Danny who can easily be traced to him, as Danny was. That's a typical, totally out of sync and out of character with the methodical no stone unturned measures that Axe usually takes. But he's so blinded by the kind of hatred that he kept talking to Taylor about, that it's fuel, that he's misguided by his own instincts. Really a rare thing for him. And he refuses to let himself see that he's making these errors or that he's being played, and that ultimately leads to his arrest. You know, he tried to best Chuck, and in doing so, in believing fully that he could, and never really thinking that Chuck was a a worthy foe, he played right into Chuck's hand, and Boyd shows up to tell him so.
0: In the spirit of friendship, I'd be glad to hold your watch. Great reference to basically the only thing that Axe did for him, which was Hold his, hold his watch. Well, and this is Boyd's hubris giving Axe an edge again. He can piece together from Boyd's freedom that Chuck and Boyd set him up. And he shows real humility at that end, at least with Wendy. And what if I told you that pretty much every decision I've made since we worked down here together has been the wrong one? Would you help me find my way back? I love that moment. Yeah, it's It's like really tender and beautiful. Okay. I just love the Axe-Wendy scenes. Yeah, and she says, yes, they have a thing. Axe's actions this season didn't just cost him his freedom, they cost him his family. Laura, furious over his Wendy life, flees. Good riddance, Father. Perhaps the clutchest move in Axe history is Axe erasing the 65 26 whatever it was Literally voice, 26. voice messages that he <laughs> left Lara that was like you think I couldn't uh, uh, got pussy I got people throwing me pussy all day your friends <laughs> everybody I could go out here I got people trying to fuck me all the time Laura you think I'm not turning it down every day five times a day <laughs> at least she left her phone right there on the table and I also know. had it off the whole time thank god <laughs> and when he finally gets back to her he loses her again using her phone to call up to fake out the feds was the final show. When he gets Ugh. home on bail, they're gone. Of course they're gone. She can't abide that. And then on to Wendy. After leaving Axe Cap, Wendy speaks as a performance coach for 75 grand. A pop. Listen. Pretty good. You get 75K to hold a bottle of Viagra and shame some douchebag. Yeah. I've made bad career choices. It's pretty, pretty, pretty good. Also, let me just say this. The uh, wardrobe choices for Maggie Siff this season. The high oh boots. Great stuff. Maggie Siff is... A stunning woman. She is. Is however Wendy fulfilled by this? No. The choices she makes at the poker tournament lead us to realize that she's not. She's there to get in Axe's head. She loves to be in the head of powerful people, to help them be better powerful people, but also just to like to be in the mix in that way. Right. You can tell that is what she loves doing. And she's not accustomed to Krakow's like small-mindedness. She's S- not a- small everything. Sm- <laughs> <laughs> so Wendy's dalliance with Craig, a.k.a. Bob Benson, a.k.a. the Elon Musk head of Farpoint is very illuminating in, in many ways. First, I would like him to be a major character in season three because he's, he's looking great. First, there's her assessment of Elena. She's a lever, a ghost, never faced real adversity, never had to deal with terrible consequences.
1: This I would like to talk about this, even though it is a really, really, really tiny subplot for just like 30 seconds, because this shook me. Wendy's conversation with this prospective astronaut, I just found those scenes like so moving and so honest and so beautiful. And it's like, what drives you? What was your history? Why are you making the choices that you're making? Why do you want to do this? Why do you want to be alone in the tube in the, in space alone? And it really seemed like they had connected in like kind of a meaningful way. And then Wendy's ruling is against her. And, It's just a reminder. It was a really effective reminder, and I think maybe so effective because it's a character we didn't know before, who we were quite taken with very quickly, Mm. that Wendy sees through the veil in a way that few people do. And she knows she does. You know, she is confident enough in her own reads to alter somebody else's entire life with one decision, with one sentence. And when Craig, a.k.a. Bob Benson, asks her about her work and what she wants, she says, I like getting messy. The power of the instant. That's what excites me. Ice into steam or back. That sounds like someone who's eager to play, if not God, then at least master chemist. Yeah. And then, of course, there's Wendy's decision to sleep with him. It's, Not that she's trying to get away with it. It's that she's being really honest with herself about what she wants and what she needs. And she's honest with him, too. He's like, well, I'm usually out of here by, you know, I I can't remember the last time I saw past five. I don't like attachments, but this feels different, doesn't it? And she's like, I called you because I knew you didn't like attachments. Get out of here. Take a shower. Hit your meeting. I'm ready to go. And her actions, they never feel as driven by pride as Chuck's. Or axes, you know, there's just an honesty and a self-awareness behind everything she does, or at least most of what she does. She's certainly not perfect, but most of what she does that the other main characters lack. But she is ashamed enough about what transpired here to withhold the information from Chuck. You know, he reveals that he went on a date and had shared a kiss with the woman who's choking him out at jujitsu. And he says in his heart, it felt like adultery. And Wendy doesn't offer up that she actually slept with somebody else.
0: Wags comes to Wendy in a bad spot. Oof. Snorting Oxy at work, whisper yelling, a fucking cell phone in this temple! Your favorite scene in television history. Wags losing his mind because some Wall Street dicks are, like, dunking their nigiri, like, way too deeply into a bath of soy sauce. That's not what the ginger is for! And then he speaks in, like, clenched Japanese to the (laughs) fucking sushi chef who is incredibly, like, honored by the stuff WAG says to him. He's ordering road bottles of Michter's celebration. He has an ass tattoo of Yosemite Sam that he has no memory of getting. I would like the record to state that that bottle yeah. of whiskey is $5,000. She gets two of them. Yeah, and Wendy, over the course of days, puts him back together. She's the only one who can do it, and she knows it. Yes, Every time Wendy counsels Wags or Axe or Dollar Bill or Taylor, she's holding the company in her hands, and that's intoxicating to her. Oh, yeah. I mean, she missed it. Yeah. She did miss it, and even though it eventually becomes
1: clear that Axe was playing Wendy all along by using these civil suits as leverage to get her back. Wendy still chose to go back, and her negotiation with Axe is is one of her better, I can be the alpha two moments. You know, she makes her demands, and she sticks to them. It doesn't matter that this is the conversation Axe wanted all along. It's how she chooses to conduct herself within that conversation. Then our relationship stays non-existent. This is non-negotiable. She is sticking to her guns. The ultimate condition that she sets, no sessions for Axe. And she he honors that word for quite some time. You know, when Axe is dealing with the Sandicott situation, Wendy says, I know you'd just be using me to make yourself feel better about what you wanted to do in the first place. You know, is that hubris? Because she actually could help if she put her pride aside. We were just saying that Wendy doesn't really let her pride get in the right. way. Not always true. Or is that some sort of wisdom? You know, Axe says, I'm not the only one who might be putting my needs above the good people of Sandicott.
0: Then there's Wendy and Lara. And we like to talk about Lara as little as possible, but this is important. Telling Lara about the policy with Axe, is that hubris or pettiness? I think it's very, very hard to read it. I'm not even sure Wendy understands why she did it. It's certainly deliberate, and Axe knows it, and Wendy admits it. Going to find Lara at the New York apartment, that you could argue is certainly hubris. She knows that there's issues between Lara and Axe about Wendy, and here she is just kind of like, picking at that wound Wendy knows that she's the last person in the world that Lara ever wants to see but Wendy has a fixer's mentality and she can't leave it be she's like I'm putting these like multi-millionaires together I can put this together partially because she wants to help Axe partially because she feels guilty but mostly because it's in her nature to believe she can solve every problem and also she's looking for that Axe I think she's
1: kind of got something for Axe I think they're well Axe too they have something that maybe transcends like sexual desire. Right.
0: There's a respect on a high level because, as Chuck Senior, so trenchantly notes, Wendy is a natural born killer. She yes. is a killer. She is
1: undeniable hubris. Wendy's decision to get in on ice, she that ice juice, <laughs> ice J. She tried to protect Chuck once she saw that the firm was taking out the position that it was taking. She went to warn Chuck. She knew that he was in on the IPO. He doesn't listen. They're not communicating, honestly. Chuck is, of course, playing at his grand deception. So she doesn't know that this is what he wants, but she still acts. She calls up Mephi. Because she knows that
0: Mephi is the one guy who's not going to check.
1: Exactly. (laughs) She's like, get me in on that ice. Yeah, you got it, Wendy. In the end, you know, her short-sightedness, her hubris in that moment, I know better than the person who's telling me that he doesn't need to listen to what I'm saying. That's a real risk. I mean, you're going to make some money. But what's the cost going to be? What kind of compromise has she just put the family in?
0: That's hubris. 100%.
1: Jason! Yes! There are so many things that we've gotten relaxed about. Running out ground balls first. Knowing Mm. that martini means gin. Isn't it nice? Yes. That someone is maintaining Thank standards God. to help us appreciate those standards in Mutton Variety or others. Mm. Please assemble the conclave and head to the Midtown Manhattan Citadel to teach us everything we need to know
0: about Keen's Steakhouse. Ah, Keen's. Let me tell you something. I love that moment when Lonnie and Soccer are like, yeah, I think Brian's going to get the promotion. How do you know? Chuck took him to Keens. What? Ah! Now, living when I lived in New York, I ate at some great restaurants and I ate at some expensive restaurants. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. Keens is an expensive restaurant. Yes, not very, but expensive. But let me say this: it is one where you taste and feel absolutely every dollar. The dry aged steak is. So delicious, it feels like you're sinning in some way. And the service is like that old school waiter service where you feel like if you were like, yo, go out and get me like a Swedish newspaper, the guy would like run out and go get it. It is my personal favorite New York steakhouse. No disrespect to Lugers where the waiters were rude to me the two times I was there. Shouts oh also to the Palms, Great New York Strip, and Sparks where Big Paul Castellano was shot by John Gotti's men back in the day. Since 1885, the place has been the spot to celebrate deals, and every inch of the place is laden with history. The ceilings are covered with these clay pipes, which is a callback to a time when smoking restaurants was the thing to do. It was a smoking club. They have pipes from numerous notable people throughout history, including General MacArthur, including Clyde Frazier, and on and on and on and on and on. This place was a meeting place for businessmen and people in who were Involved with the stage from the 19th century, early 20th century, the walls are this like dark wood covered with these vintage political cartoons and playbills and stuff. A lot of them super racist because it's like from 1890 in the Lincoln Room, which is like one of their grand rooms. They have what is claimed to be the actual playbill that Abraham Lincoln was holding when he was assassinated. Wow. Tough stuff, tough stuff, and onto the mutton chop, which they talk about there. It is a dish that's fallen out of favor historically in a lot of the other steakhouses around. But what Keens is famous for it. Anthony Bourdain had it when no reservations went to Keens back in like two thousand nine or whatever it was. I've had it, and I can report to you that it's it's fine. It's good. One day, Mel, we will go. Okay. We will have the porterhouse for two, and you will understand what it feels like to have some kind of a mouth orgasm on steak. The aged <laughs> steak there is just really freaking good. Like I'm, can we go immediately? Yes. Yeah, I was never like really a steak person. We I went there for like a work event the first time, and I was like, "Yo, this I've never tasted meat like this. It is incredible, incredible." Keen Steakhouse, I highly recommend it. I think I misplayed my New York years a bit. Oi, now I like nightmares. What? When I wake up, they leave me deeply valuing my reality. The billions creators clearly value something other than their reality. Great cinema. Yes. Great references. This show is, man, chock full of film references, both casual and overt. So as long as Dake's not there, let's head to the Sept. going to church. Yeah, he does. By sharing seven of our favorite movie references from Billion season two, I will go first. Number one, Blade Runner or... The movie that Adam, too, took you to see that your father knew <laughs> meant that Adam was serious about you. <laughs> Oren and Axe are talking about the deposition that they're going to have with Chuck. And Bach says, in depots, I've seen things you wouldn't believe. Axe, attacks ships on fire. Yes, the very best case is gone like tears in the rain.
1: Orin might be one of my like top five characters. Love Orin Bach. Really love Orin. Number two, Reyes references Die Hard to Chuck Says, you're alive as long as you're making progress. But if the AG, general, <laughs> but if the AG thinks you're stalling, she's going to show you the Hans Gruber memorial exit, which I guess we're supposed to infer means the legal version of shooting Chuck so that he falls out of the window to his death.
0: Ho, ho, ho. Spoiler alert. Right. Number three, uh, the Godfather, Axe, talking about Chuck Sr.'s position on that ICE IPO. It's like Sonny on the Causeway. What does that mean? That's when Sonny, eldest son of the Godfather, is rushing home because he finds out that their sister has been beaten by their husband. And it's a trap. He's been set up. He gets to the causeway, to the toll booth, and there's like four dudes with Tommy guns, and they shoot him up. Sonny on the Causeway. Great scene. Very memorable. Tough stuff. It's extremely tough stuff. And I think, if I recall correctly, at the time, that was the most squibs ever used in a film. Oh. On one scene. Look at you. I'm just saying. I feel like Sean Fennessy now. (laughs) (laughs) Coming for you. Number four. Yeah. Rudy. 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 Rudy.
1: (laughs) Taylor meets with Rudy, whose real name is Peter, but everyone at Axe Capital calls him Rudy. He's dead last in the ranks, Jay, and Taylor has to fire someone. Will it be Rudy? Well, Rudy explains. When Taylor says, do you prefer Peter? Right. I love that they call me Rudy. You know why? It's because this place is like Notre Dame was for him. The pinnacle, right? right. Notre Dame football acts capital for the underdog like Rudy. And when Taylor doesn't fire him and he walks out, the office led by Mephi, they
0: greet little Peter, little Rudy. With the chant, Rudy, 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 Rudy. And I think I understand what they're saying now. It's Rudy. <laughs> Number five. Uh, no Country for Old Men, the Coen Brothers' adaption of the Cormac McCarthy novel, which I really like, both the novel and the film. Brian referring to Dake as... Anton Chigurh, the relentless assassin from the book and the film.
1: I can 100% see Dake saying friendo.
0: Can I just say that I don't believe that Dake has seen movies. Dake does not (laughs) seem like a guy who gets movie references.
1: (laughs) Number six, The Firm. Heavily referenced between Taylor and Connerty. And in The Firm, Tom Cruise plays Mitch McDeer. Mitch McDeer. A young lawyer who takes a job at a Memphis law firm that he soon learns is a front for the
0: mafia. Happens.
1: Ed Harris plays Wayne, an FBI agent who sees McDear as the firm's weak link. You know, Brian is trying to use this as right. like
0: a bonding sort of. He's trying to. He is trying to strike up like these kind of areas of of shared experience yes. with Taylor. You're a good person, yes. and blah 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 blah. And Taylor
1: says. The reason and Harris can get tough with Tom Cruise is because he knows Cruise has seen
0: the bodies. Taylor, they're implying that they have not seen the bodies, but Taylor will very soon. Number seven, a few good men. Chuck, of a former classmate to George Minchak, the political consultant. She's trying to find out if uh, Chuck has done anything untoward or bad in his past. And he's talking about how he used to bully a kid. He says, one night. He got the code red treatment at boarding school, which is like, I mean, that's. And she's like, did he kill himself? Very tough question. Very tough question. He's like, no, he went on to the Ivy League.
1: Guys, it turned out Chuck was the boy. Chuck was talking about himself. That's right.
0: We later find.
1: Jason. Yes. Now you're baptized by blood. (laughs) I love when Wag says Uh, that to Taylor. Incredible. Which means that you are ready to crown this week's winner. Every episode, we're gonna honor the person or idea that compelled us the most. And today, we are awarding our champion's purse, paid out in Dollar Bill's duffel bags. 250K. Dollar Bill's cheap, so it's really something. To Taylor Mason.
0: Incredible showing by Taylor Mason, who just comes in and really Shows an incredible competence and command of the space. My pronouns are they, theirs, and them. Really cool contrast to the environment of Axe Cap.
1: Taylor instantly wows Axe with the anti-Krakow research. And, you know, we see the same thing that Axe sees, a true prodigy. And the poker stuff, it's fun for a lot of reasons, but it's a really key part of Taylor's arc and of our enhanced understanding of who Taylor is, what Taylor's history is. And Taylor's self-assessment during that episode is just refreshingly revealing. I'd prefer not to, Taylor says, when, you know, Axe is pushing Taylor to play. That kind of competition made me sick. It literally brought on feelings of malaise. You know, this is a world where people are lying to themselves all the time. And Taylor is really trying hard not to.
0: I love the opening line to Gus and Wendy in the coaching sessions. I have to tell you, I've had 927 hours of therapy. And then Gus leans forward and goes, first of all, this isn't therapy. Second of all, I've had more therapy than you. And third of all, whatever else that Gus says that is like crazy Gus ass shit. The exchange with Axe during the poker tourney, Axe says, hate is nature's most perfect energy source. It's endlessly renewable. And Taylor says, I don't want to lean into that feeling. Axe says, you and I don't get to glide. We churn. That's the sacrifice we make for being able to see what we see. And Taylor says, I know you believe that, but I choose to take a different lesson. Axe says, it's not a choice. And look what Axe is doing there. He's saying, you and I are alike. We learned so much about Axe this season through his conversations
1: with Taylor. To crack out. This is an incredible moment when when Krakow and Taylor are dueling for the prize. The the pot. The Alpha Cup. And Taylor says, I think you're trying to bully me. And a bully is devastated when you
0: stand up to him.
1: Yes. I mean, how can you not root for Taylor in a moment like that? And of
0: course, Taylor rides in a private jet, drinks great whiskey, pays for in cash at $26,000 a month. Manhattan apartment. Gets that 500k bonus from Axe, which with a promise, at least from Dollar Bill, who says like he's going to give you one and a half sticks, gets the 250k in a duffel bag from Dollar Bill, who is notably cheap and owns many dry cleaning places. Pretty good life, and of also course, just dunks on Connerty. very hard. You have nothing on Axe Capital, even less on me, and then walks out. But then a bit of hesitation plays on their face, and of course the ultimate seal of approval after Taylor fires someone. Wags says, and now you're baptized by blood. From Dollar Bill with the duffel, you know it took me a while, but now I get it, exactly what Axe sees in you. Taylor genuinely has their respect, and Axe makes Taylor interim CIO, and they absolutely deserves it. What a season for Taylor. Yeah.
1: All right, friends, in the immortal words of Wags, it's no exaggeration to say that Bobby Axelrod is the man who gave us our life, or at least let us keep it. But even more than that, he's given us friendship. Yeah. The kind of friendship that's more than money, more than talent. It's almost family. But unlike family, he never turns away. He's the only one who truly sees us and doesn't judge. He accepts us as we are. Yes. And that kind of friendship is everything. It is the stuff of life itself. I found that wag speech quite
0: stirring. Except for the the part where he described ATM as... (laughs) Accepts us as we are. Being accepted as you are, which suggests a thing that I think he didn't mean to suggest.
1: (sighs) Nice season one callback there. Yes. From WAGS and the writers. Guys, we hope you had as much fun as we did this week talking about Billions season one and two, that you will check out the Watches interview with WAGS, David Costabile, and that you will tune in for the Recapables on Sunday night for season three, episode one, and every Sunday from there on. We also hope, of course, that you are as excited as we are for Binge Mode, Harry Potter, and Con of Thrones later this spring, and that you will join us again next week. Until then... Remember, you shame the angels. You really do.
0: By heaving his seed into your bride. Jesus, fuck. Heaving his seed. God. Tough stuff. (laughs)
1: does mrs martinez give him permission to speak that way